today's message is going to be a little bit different than a, than a standard message uh, because we're in a series where we're talking about the greatest challenges to the Christian faith or the greatest obs, uh, what's the word oppositions to the Christian faith. And so last week, I talked about the problem of pain. And I talked about how most of the time, people's real problem starts with pain. And so then they fall back on an intellectual argument uh, because, of, because of the pain. And it's like uh, Pastor Rice Brooks says, um, I don't believe in God, I hate him. Right? And it's like, that's the atheist's plea. And so uh, the reality is most of us, uh, if we don't believe in God, we really are angry at him because we think that he's been unjust to us. It's that problem of evil. It's that problem of pain. That's what we talked about this week. Because I believe that that's first, and second comes the intellectual one. Today we're going we're to touch on some of the intellectual challenges to the Christian faith. And, uh, and we're going to break it into really just two main parts. But to do so, I want to um, I look at Thomas. Thomas has a nickname, Doubting Thomas, from John 20, verses 24 through 29. And Thomas has that reputation as the disciple who wouldn't believe without being able to put his hands on Jesus, because that's exactly what he said. So I want to look at this, and then I want to look at what Jesus' response to it. And then I want to I ask the question, is God really calling us? Does the Bible command us to blind faith? Is faith blind? And that's the question that we're asking. So John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, this is after Jesus had risen from the grave. So it's after uh, he's shown himself to the disciples a couple of times. He's showed up on the road to Emmaus. People have seen him and they're starting to get excited about it. But Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to him, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nail and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then, Jesus, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. These are God's word. Father, we love you. And I ask that you would open up our minds to understand the kind of faith that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is where we get the phrase doubting Thomas. It's, re- it's defined as a, a skeptical person who refuses to believe something without proof. Everybody had this amazing experience. This Jesus who was killed and rose from the dead showed up to the disciples and Thomas missed out on it. And he's mad. And so he's like, I would never believe <laughs> unless I had this experience. And so I can't, I can't blame him for being mad. Have you ever had people experience something without you? And then you're like, y'all did that without me? It's normally about food for me. Right? Like if you went to a restaurant after church today and you came back next week and said, we went to this place and we had the best nachos ever. There it is, nachos. I'd be like, I don't even believe you. 
I will not believe you until I put that in my mouth and savor it for myself. I refuse to believe you. One, that you found better nachos, and two, that you would do it without me. Right, But I, it's hard to blame Thomas for being a little bit upset because he had followed Jesus. He had been disappointed just like everybody else. He had heard the reports of the empty tomb and now Jesus rose and didn't have the nerve to include Thomas in the moment. Of course Thomas is a little bit mad. Wouldn't you be? Your friend came back to life and didn't bother to show himself to you? You with me? You'd be mad, at least a little bit. But we have to give Thomas some credit. One, he holds fast to the possibility of belief. He leaves the door open minimally. He left the door open. Many people who don't believe, uh, I had a pastor, and my pastor's name was Pastor David Grabo. He said that he was, had a friend of his who he was ministering to who was an atheist, and they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then he paused. He said, if I could answer all of your questions, will you then believe? And like the King James, just like that, will you then believe? Just kidding. Uh, and, and his friend said, no. conversation over. You don't really want proof. You don't want to believe. And so Thomas left open the possibility for for belief by saying, unless I see God this way, then then I won't believe. But there was an open door with Thomas. Um, Anybody who's intellectually honest, who's saying these are the facts that caused me to not believe in Jesus, should have some facts that say these are the facts that would allow me to follow Jesus. Uh, so he holds, right, he holds fast to the possibility of belief. And two, he's in the right place to learn. He didn't say, yeah, if, if God shows himself to me and then just go, you know, run so far from God that, he couldn't, that he'd never actually have an opportunity to, to see or be seen. Uh, and so the equivalent of that is saying, you know, I don't believe in God yet. I'm not a Christian yet, but I'm interested. I'm, I'm wondering, but I'll show up to church. I'll maybe attend a small group. I'm going to put myself in the right opportunity or in the right place and give God an opportunity to, to show me him the way that, I, that I'm hoping that I can see him. Does that make sense? You with me? So we got to give him those two pieces of credit. So all of this wraps up. Jesus comes. He sees him. And then uh, Thomas comes to faith. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who have seen and, and uh, who have not seen and yet have believed. Many people point to this passage and others like it to, to, to say that the Bible is calling us to blind faith that has no proof because of what Jesus said. They think that Jesus is, is rebuking Thomas and being like, well, woobity do you believe now. You got to see me. But the people who can believe without seeing, the people who are blind and have no proof, those are the people who are going to be really, really blessed. I firmly believe that there are two ways that this objection is stated. One is best portrayed in this video clip that I want to show you. This is a conversation that you may have had in the gym or you may have had in your own kitchen. Maybe not dressed like I'm that. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight... 
we were going up against Satan's cave man. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> so uh, the character walking around is a priest who is taking on wrestling to raise money for orphans. And um, that's his wrestling buddy, his partner. And the conversation is, why do I, they're going up against Satan Caveman that night, and, and I'm concerned that you haven't been baptized. So he took care of the baptism. <laughs> Not sure that one counts. But it's that statement, I only believe in science. I only believe in science. And so um, that's, an op- that's something that I've run into on the college campus when I was doing college ministry and when I visit the campus. Somebody's always telling me, well, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. I'm like, man, well, that's great that you believe in science because God made science. God believes in science too is another way of saying it. I love science also is a great response to that. You don't have to panic. If somebody says that they believe in science, therefore they don't believe in God because science doesn't disprove God. Um, a friend of mine told me recently that someone close to them uh, said, for every fact that you have to support the evidence of God, I've got a fact that proves God doesn't exist. But science doesn't do that. You, it, science can't, evidence doesn't disprove a thing. It can point toward another thing. And you can develop an alternate theory. But it, it's, it's uh, like last week, I said that bad food doesn't disprove good food. It just means there's more than one kind of food. Right? It's like saying, saying, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. is like, I don't believe in buildings because I believe in bricks. Right? I don't believe in nachos because I believe in tortillas. Well, great, you've got a part of the nachos, but it, it, it's a lot better when it's a part of the full. And so science can't disprove the existence of God, but it also can't prove the existence of God. Um, I've heard people say, well, you, wouldn't, you can't approach science with a clear mind because you believe in God. And sometimes when, when an accusation comes, we're so panicked because of the accusation, we forget that if you don't believe in God, it skews your idea of science as well. Because science, what science will do is it'll open your... Science is only possible because of how God did, did it. C.S. Lewis said it this way, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. So because God created the universe in order, and, and science will tell you order doesn't, uh, disorder doesn't create order, the existence of the universe as it is doesn't make any sense at all because it shouldn't be scattered the way that it's scattered. And so what's funny is as science is, is progressed and been able to not disprove God, what we've done now is they're like, okay, we've got this problem, we exist. The problem that's dealt with in Genesis 1, that God created us. We've got this problem, and, and so uh, n- things can't come from nothing, and so something had to start. So let's say, let's say in- instead of talking about that, let's talk about the possibility that there are infinite numbers of universes. And if there are infinite numbers of universes, then 
there's a, there's, a, there's a possibility of a world like ours being created and life coming up like ours came. That takes a lot of faith to believe. Because you're still right back down to chance. And I don't know, Ben, you're the math scientist. Maybe I'll, I'll have you do some math this week and bring some stats back. But, but I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that science, because science can't, can't prove how we came to be, it's saying, well, let's say there are infinite chances, and because there are infinite chances, there's a, there's a chance that we would be here. So there's a leap that needs to be taken either way that you go. Science is enormously helpful, and it's only made possible by the God who created everything to follow certain laws. The existence of laws of logic point to an intelligent mind behind the universe. If the universe came into existence for no reason at all, why would we have any reason to trust our own reason? Because now we're finding logic inside of logic inside of logic inside of logic. Why would we trust our own logic? If our logic is here five times removed from chance, as opposed to a creator who placed us here in his image. God built it this way on purpose with order and structure and he made us creative and he made us uh, uh, curious to seek things out with the capacity to understand, the capacity to grow, the capacity to learn. And we find the answer why. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the reason that he's okay with this process, the reason that God likes science, is because if you're actually interested in truth, you'll stumble on him eventually anyway. Again, it won't ever prove the existence of God or the existence of Jesus. But it'll bring you to a place where you have to make a decision. Either this all really did come from nothing and chance, or the prime mover, the source of all of this, is a God. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? So if somebody tells you that I don't believe in God because I believe in science, you don't have to say, well, that's like saying you don't believe in houses because you have a brick. That's not a good idea. (laughs) The better idea is saying, you know, I believe in science too. I'm thankful that, you know, we figured out antibiotics. You know, I'm, I'm thankful that we figured out how to do stitches. I'm thankful that there's consistency in certain, in certain things. I'm thankful for gravity. Thank God for gravity, right? That'd be awkward. If, if it was a little stronger, our knees would be all bad. And if it was a little weaker, we'd all be floating. It's a weird life. We don't come to God against reason, but through reason. Romans 1.20 says that the nature and character of God are clearly seen through what's been made. The evidence is in nature as well as in Scripture. I would say that real faith is grounded in evidence. It's only a question of which evidence you're willing to receive. So the second thing is that this this belief that... um, the, the whole faith is blind thing. So I believe in science and then there is an unwillingness to make a decision because I haven't seen Jesus. Right? And so this more strongly ties to what, to what uh, Thomas was, was dealing with. But the Bible is calling us to believe without sight, not without proof. 
I don't know, I don't know when we started to think that blind people don't have any other senses to work with. They can perceive, they just can't see with their eyes. A blind person, somebody without sight, has to rely more strongly on their other senses in order to perceive the world around them. Are you with me? And so I've got a second, I've got a second video clip for you today, just because I was in a movie mood. It kind of demonstrates this idea of using your other senses to understand the world around you. He's recently gone blind. First time she didn't answer him. she's happy her son's going to be okay he's going to make it there's evidence that people who are without sight that their their bodies compensate now not everybody gets superpowers not everybody's going to hear a cricket and be able to track it down that's Ray Charles right in the in the in the video um but there is evidence to say that the part of the, the brain that lights up when you see something actually becomes active when you hear things when you're, when you're without sight. 
And so your body and your brain compensates for what you, what you lack. Now, I just I find this really, really interesting because God has provided other ways for us to come to know things and perceive things and understand things other than just seeing them. The evidence in Scripture is also that if Jesus showed up in front of us, we probably wouldn't recognize him anyway. His disciples didn't recognize him on the road to Emmaus, right? When he had just risen from the dead and they were visiting him at the tomb, they thought he was a gardener, right? So it's two cases right now where the people who were walking with him and where his disciples didn't even recognize him. We'd be shocked if he showed up here on the stage next to me because he probably doesn't look like we want him to, right? He's a Middle Eastern man, Middle Eastern Jewish man. And so we probably, wouldn't, we probably wouldn't recognize him for who he is if we saw him with our own eyes. And so, sometimes, so we are forced to believe through other means. And so what are the other means? Right, let me say this first. And then I'm going to jump into uh, four of the basic proofs that we can look at uh, that, that you can also find in a book that I'm going to share. But um, sometimes we have to believe God when... We don't understand. And there's no way of perceiving what he's up to. Uh, very much in line with the, the message last week on pain. In the midst of pain, we don't understand. We can't perceive. We, we can't see. All we, all we know is what we feel, and what we feel is bad. And we, and we find ourselves in a position where we have to trust him, even though we don't know where we're going to go. That, that kind of blind faith. But even that's not blind. Why would you give that much money away? Because it honors God. That makes no sense to the world. Why would you forgive that person? Because God has forgiven me of even greater offense. It makes no earthly sense, but it makes all the spiritual sense in the world because we've experienced the, the, the truth of his presence in other ways. I've got a Bible full of promises for obedience. And those, those promises that I find in Scripture are as real to me as anybody who would tell me it's foolish or even more real to me than anybody who would tell me that it's foolish to give money away in my financial situation, right? You with me? There are four base-level proofs that... Um, that even even atheists acknowledge that I want to share with you. And uh, just a time out for an advertisement or a promo. Um, this book, Man, Myth, Messiah by Rice Brooks, I do highly recommend it. Uh, I'm basically going to be summarizing. I think it's chapter two. Um, and, and I think it's chapter two. The minimal facts, what even skeptics believe. Okay. It's, a, it's available at our resource center. I think it's $11. If you can buy it, buy it. If you can't buy it, ask me for a copy and we'll get you a copy. Does that make sense? It's like, it's, it's that, like if you want to know, if you, if you want to mine in and figure out what is this evidence for Jesus being who he says he is, I want to make sure that you get the resources to, to help you grow in that understanding. If you are here for the first time and you want this instead of the coffee mug, you can have that too. So, but if you, but if you, if you can't afford it and you want it, let me know and I'll put it in your hands. Th- 
So I'm going I'm to share four quick proofs with you that aren't summarized here, but I'll expound on one of them. First is science. And that science does not disprove God, that things are in order, the, the laws of thermodynamics, I think that'll probably be in here. If it's not in this, it'll be in the book God's Not Dead, the, the one he wrote before this one. And, and basically, it's that, that idea that order doesn't come from disorder. And so that points to the evidence of a creator. Science points to a creator. The second part, the second way that God helps us perceive who he is and that he exists, that he is real, and that he cares for us now is personal testimony. Someone may take issue with how they feel about how God treated them, but they can't deny his existence by the way that they feel. Uh, most people don't actually have a real problem with God. They've got a problem with the people who call themselves gods. They've got a problem with the church. They've got a problem with religion. They've got a problem with all these extra, you know, external things. Most people I've ever met have never actually had a problem with Jesus. Actually, I can't think of anybody I've ever met who actually had a problem with Jesus. It's always about his followers, and that's not going to be good enough when we stand in front of Jesus and he's like, why didn't you believe in me? Well, he said something mean. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if you're an atheist or you don't find yourself in a place of belief, but, but like, I don't mean to make fun of, make fun of you, but I'm, I, how is that a satisfactory argument? Well, that person who follows you is mean. I don't believe in PETA because I saw somebody be mean to a dog. So, um, I'm... I'm the leading notes in my head. I'm trying to figure out how far we can go. This personal testimony. What God has done in your life will speak more loudly than any other evidence that you can provide to someone. What has God done in your life? What change has occurred in your life? What truth are you standing on? What hope do you have that you're standing on is exactly the ticket to life that somebody needs. And sure, we should be willing to share that. That's why that last step, invite, come on. That's okay you don't believe the Bible. Come anyway. That's okay you don't, you don't want to worship Jesus yet. That's, just come, just listen, just watch. Um, so we have personal testimony. There's the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now this is actually the most important one, that the Holy Spirit is constantly working on everyone. You know that feeling that you feel when God's speaking to you and he's like, no, nah, you shouldn't do that. Watch your mouth. Right? Follow me. Reach out to that person. Give that person a couple bucks. Love on this person. Pray for this person. Hey, you know the, that name pops in your mind you hadn't thought about them in a little while and you call them and they're going through something that? He's doing the same thing to everybody all the time. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the reality of God's kingdom and the reality of God's person all the time without ceasing. And so anytime we're talking to somebody, we're just agreeing with what the Holy Spirit is already doing. So the last thing, and this is where I'm going to spend uh, more time than the other points, is that we have history. We have history to look at. The fact, these bare minimum facts, chapter 2, we've got these minimal facts that even atheists acknowledge. The very first one is that Jesus existed as a person. 
That's undeniable. You can, you can find that Jesus existed only by looking at non-biblical sources. Like, right? So you can prove the life of Jesus by looking at things that, that aren't written by biblical authors, that aren't written by people who believed in him, that aren't written by people who love him, who, aren't written, who are written by people who probably wish that he didn't exist. So that he existed. Jesus died by crucifixion. It's a historical fact. This man named Jesus, who said these remarkable things and promised that he was going to die and rise from the dead, he, he died by crucifixion at a time when he shouldn't have died by crucifixion because he was a Jewish rabbi. He had no business, who, who hadn't done anything. He had no business being crucified and getting the worst penalty possible. They bypassed like five levels of punishment to crucify him. Crucifixion is so gruesome that they wouldn't, even gru- they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens. They would do like five other things, including basically torture, but they wouldn't crucify them. So there's no reason that somebody who the, the, the Roman governor thought had committed no crime, there's no reason he should have been crucified. But, he, but he, it, the Bible says it was going to happen. And it did. So... The Gospels record it, so we find biblical evidence of it. But virtually all of the church writings are filled with references to, to Jesus being crucified by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. There are records of this from historians and writers who were not sympathetic to Christian issues. When an enemy, uh, when an enemy or opponent references an event, historians count that as a fact that marks authenticity. Why are the enemies or the, uh, the opposers of these facts even talking about it in the first place? Because it, because it gives credibility to the story that's being told. So uh, authors and historians are speaking about this thing that they should have made go away. Especially if they're trying to say that it didn't happen. Tacitus is one of those people. He's generally regarded as the greatest Roman historian. He was the preconsul of Asia from A.D. 112 to 113. His last work, The, the Annals, was written um, around uh, 116 or 117, and it included Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our pure, pure, uh, procurators, Pontius Pilate. Um, the second, or the third, is that his tomb was found empty. This is a big deal when a tomb is found empty. Now, this is what's exciting about the tomb being found empty. We know whose tomb he was buried in. Well, first of all, he, he, was, he was called down. It was immediate, his body was immediately requested by Pontius Pilate because he didn't want, because of Jewish custom, they needed to get him down. They didn't want to leave him up. And so they had to bring him down and they had to deal with the body before the Sabbath. And so they brought the body of Jesus down at the order of Pontius Pilate. And then Joseph of Arimathea placed him in his tomb. Now, if you've got a tomb, you've got some money. And if you want to tell a story, if you want to tell a lie, don't give specific names, specific people, and specific dates. Right? If, if I'm telling you how big a fish I caught, I'm lying. Because I'm, I'm going to leave out a lot of really important facts. I'm not going to give you a measurement. I'm going to say it was about this big. Right? But compared to what I could be lying, it's, you know, somewhere in the middle. 
Um, so you don't want to give those kind of specific information. And they gave very specific information. They all had, had mentioned women were the first eyewitnesses that the tomb was empty. The testimony of women was insignificant in that time. Why would you start with somebody whose testimony doesn't count as much as somebody else's? If you want something to spread, you start it with somebody credible. And at that time, these women wouldn't have been the most credible witnesses. And it started there. Um, women were even dismissed in ancient trials as being un- uncredible. And so why would you, why would you start with them? Uh, the creed... Uh, so there is a lie, there is a theory that, that a council created the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and that the tomb was empty in 320 or so, 324 AD, I think. And, and so, but the problem with that theory is that 1 Corinthians 15.4 had already been written. It was written within the lifetime of the people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And it said, he was buried. If he was buried, then the tomb had a geographical as well as historical marker that the Jewish and authorities, uh, Jewish and Roman uh, authorities would have had to, uh, all they would have had to do is produce his body. But Romans 15 talks about how he was buried and how he rose from the dead. And so these are things that were stated immediately, very quickly afterwards. The book of Acts depends on the rise of Jesus, on the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's stated all throughout the New Testament in books that were, that were written by the church that followed. Him rising from the dead was critical to the establishment of the Christian church. I don't know, is this encouraging to you at all? I don't know, maybe, whatever. I'm going to preach again in just a second, and that'll be more exciting than teaching. I'm not a teacher. The empty tomb is significant in that it demonstrates that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection, it was a physical resurrection. Finally, uh, number four, his disciples believe that he appeared to them. Just the bottom line, that something happened in the lives of real men and real women in such a way that it kicks something off that hasn't stopped. Something happened to multiple people. Most religions have one person who has secret revelation that they share with nobody else. Jesus appeared to the disciples, and Jesus appeared to 500 at one time, we learn in in 1 Corinthians. And so all these other religions, if somebody tells you that one person got special revelation, and they wrote it down, and there's no more evidence, Mormonism has like these scroll, this this ancient writing that was in gold tablets that aren't around anymore because they were spiritual. Okay, great, but could the angel, would have been a lot more helpful if he appeared to many people? Right? So Islam depends on Muhammad being the only one who understood and pulled down these revelations from heaven. And he was just a, he was a prophet. Jesus also pulled down revelation from heaven and he made some claims, but he rose from the dead. I'm going with the one who rose from the dead. So, so, uh, man, it's so much information. Just get the book. So, the resurrection was proclaimed early. I already, I already said this uh, along with point four or three or something. But the resurrection was proclaimed early. This isn't something that got made up late. This is something that was believed in early. And it was the greatest news of all. Like, if you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus, all of this is for nothing. We sang some songs and, you know, you had a couple donuts and we, we, you said hi to some people and you had, you know... We had some announcements, and we're going to have a conference. (laughs) 
That's really all this is. This is like a bad TED Talk right now. This is the worst TED Talk you've ever heard if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It all, it all goes back to the resurrection. It did for the early church and it does for us now. The bottom line is that there's so much evidence for His resurrection that it would take hours to explain. And so read the book. And what's exciting about reading this book is that when you read the Bible, you go, oh, that's what that means. Um, some people, some claims deny historical facts. Uh, and that's what I was talking about earlier, the people who deny that, that, uh, that Jesus had risen from the dead and it was created by the Council of Nicaea or another council. That's just simply not the case. Because the early church believed it, and the early church depended on it, the early church preached it, the early church worshipped about it, the early church had creeds about it, the early church was, was celebrating just that, that he had risen from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, so would they. Um, it's, it's argued that the Gospels and Acts aren't historically reliable. Well, <laughs> okay, but by all reasonable... Now, I'm, I'm quoting Dr. Rice Brooks here. All reasonable historic, historical standards... They're some of the most reliable documents from that period. Luke is the author of both Gospels of Luke and Acts, and he began writing, writing by describing his works as follows. Many have under, this is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many people have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, all the things that happened, just as they were handed down by us uh, from those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of him. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated, he was a physician, have, has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that's the person he, he's writing this to, so that you may know with certainty the things that you've been taught. Luke based his writings on the eyewitnesses' account, on, on the eyewitnesses accounts, and he had other writings. He, he was able to look at the, the Gospel of Mark, and he also hung out with Paul. Uh, who wrote uh, much of the New Testament, a lot of the letters, Ephesians, Colossians, right? Um, people will say that um, minor details of his writings have been verified by numerous archaeological discoveries. Now, that's not the people will say, but people will say that uh, that People who, who aren't studied in history and archaeology will, will say that the inconsistencies across the books are problematic, where Luke's account may vary from another account that that's a problem. Um, a detective would tell you that that's a good thing when the accounts don't line up perfectly because our experiences are different. It's actually a whole scene in the movie God's Not Dead is dedicated to that kind of evidence. But if something, when you go out in the parking lot today and if you talk about what happened at church today, you're going to share a little bit different versions of what happened based on where you saw, what, where you sat and what you saw from where you sat and then what your experience was with it in that moment. Right? So I'm going to, or I'm going to give information way out of order and I'm going to have to go back and be like, oh, no, 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 wait, wait, but first we did this other song. And, and I'm going to be jumping all over the place. Megan's going to be very linear. Sean's going to talk about the word, right? And we're going to, we're going to have all these different things and we're going to come at it from different places. But all of us are telling the, the same truth that we were in this service where these things happen. And so everybody, I just, I, I'm taking this time because I want us to be confident in the resurrection of Jesus. I want us to be confident. Like, we will, 
I don't know. I, I wouldn't be willing to grow if I wasn't confident that it was true. And being confident that it's true is a big important part of our growth, right? Like if I'm going to trust this guy, Jesus, he better have risen from the dead. And so if nothing else, I'm hopeful that, that you know, maybe this was just like a lot of, you know, just really exciting for me. Because I like reading about this stuff. But I, I hope that you're leaving with a little bit of like, man, Jesus like really lived. And he really died. And he really rose from the dead. Whatever decisions you want to make after that, <laughs> that's, on, that's on you. But I believe that he's resurrected. I believe that he's the king. I believe that he's God. Looking back to the passage, I want to make just a few quick observations and then let you go. There's no extra credit for coming to faith first. We know him as doubting Thomas. Jesus knows him as believing Thomas. He is not known as doubting Thomas in heaven. Just a son. As much a son as anybody who believed the first time that they saw as much a son as anybody who believed without seeing. As much a son as anybody who believed by seeing. He came to a place in belief is the bottom line. And whether you're on your way to belief in Christ or you've been walking for a long time, once in Christ, we all have the same standing. You will not be known as alcoholic. You will not be known as abuser. You will not be known as once depressed. You will not be known as once suicidal or once atheist or once agnostic. You will not be known as once hateful or unforgiving or once prideful. You will only be known as a son or a daughter. And in the way that we choose to remember Thomas exposes our sinfulness and our judgment. And that stands as an affront to God's heart and God's desire for Thomas and for us today. When Thomas's eyes were open to the reality of the gospel, come on, he cried out, my Lord and my God. Sometimes the people who take the longest to come to faith are the most exuberant, the most passionate, and the most faithful once they come to faith. So don't you quit seeking after God if you don't yet believe. Don't you quit on that family member or that friend or that coworker who does not yet believe. Persevere and trust that God will show himself to be real because we don't serve a God with faith that is without proof. We serve a God with tons of evidence, ourselves among it. 